Hello, Marvelites! You are listening to Marvel's Polis, and I'm Ryan Panagos, aka Agent M. And I'm Tucker Marcus. And we are going to tell you all about the brand new Marvel comics on sale this week. And it's a lot of them. We're kicking off 2021 in style with some great books, a ton of great books. But Tucker, how are you? I'm doing all right. Yeah, I'm doing okay. You know, I know things are going wild over in your neck of the woods, but I'm excited for you. I'm happy for you. Happy New Year to you. Thank you. Yeah, we bought a house, closed on it. And as you do when you you buy a house, you're like, I'm going to change things. (laughs) And... That's a lot. Right now, they're installing a couple of carpets in the house. You know, I'm going to have this big, really cool space for for doing all my work stuff. My my office is going to be really great once we get up and running. So it's good. It's just, it is slow going when you buy a house. I'll tell you that much. (laughs) Uh, So this episode, we're going to talk about some great new comics, and then we're going to get into our reading club. We wanted to replay a reading club from a couple months ago, our She-Hulk reading club, Sensational She-Hulk, because, you know, people are excited about She-Hulk, you know, with the news about the Disney Plus show, Marvel Studios She-Hulk coming in the future. We wanted to bring this one to you guys again because man those issues were terrific Lorraine Sink was our guest we'll get into more of that later I think we should just start at the beginning with our picks for the week we've got three of them I'm gonna kick us off Tucker with Eternals number one this is a long-awaited issue it is written by Kieran Gillen is penciled by Isad Rabik and it is colored by Matthew Wilson letters by VCs Clayton Cowles there's also for everybody who reads digitally there is uh, like a special edition of the first issue called Eternals Never Die, Never Win edition, which has tons of bonus stuff. It has some information, like an interview and whatnot with Kieran Gillen, some stuff from Isad. And uh, it has basically the entire issue's pencils from Isad in there. You want to look at like a master and see how they do their thing. It's wow. Because you've got Matt Wilson, who's one of the greatest colorists in comics, and Mm -hmm. you've got him coloring over Isad, and it's just magic right there. Um, we open up with Naked Resurrection for our boy Icarus, who is one of the Eternals. And from there, it's like, if you've never read an Eternals book, it is a very fresh start to what's going on with the Eternals. Because they had previously all been killed, and this brings them back. And the sort of the idea is that like the Eternals... They can die, but they resurrect. And this gets into some of how they resurrect, sort of the mechanics behind it, which is really cool. This book is a tour de force and a triple D, a ding-dang delight, seeing all the weird stuff put into this book. A lot of it is getting to understand who the Eternals are through the eyes of Icarus and Sprite. Sprite is sort of the young Eternal who is perpetually like 12 or 13 years old. We get into the idea that the Eternals can resurrect or change like their gender, their shape, everything about them. They still retain who they are. They just are very malleable in what they want to be, which is really cool. We get them reintegrating into the Marvel Universe and then sort of going back in on themselves because there's something big happening to them. I really, really highly suggest this. If you've never read an Eternals book, I highly suggest it. If you have read the Eternals books from Kirby or from Neil Gaiman and John Romita Jr. and and tons more, it's great. It's great. It's got, I know, you know, it's one of my picks, but it gets my pulley for environments of the week. The stuff Mm. that Isad draws in the background is just magnificent. Yeah, totally agreed. So, so exciting. And hey, more 
of the amazing Matt Wilson on the way in Thor number 11, which is my pick this week. It's written, of course, by Donny Cates with art by Nick Klein, colors by Mr. Wilson, and letters and design by VCs Joe Sabino. We're in the middle of the kind of glorious or inglorious reintroduction of Donald Blake, former Thor, former one known as Thor, into the Marvel Universe, into the fold. He's kind of popped up here and there, but this is his major, major reintroduction in particular as a villain in a villainous role. It's really, really cool. But what I loved most about this issue, as we continue to get to know the version of Dr. Blake that's heavily involved in this story, is essentially the supporting cast. First and foremost being Jane Foster. She sits down for a dinner with Donald Blake. Obviously, they have a long romantic history, a long history beyond that. Uh, and that's a fascinating conversation. One of those really cool things where you get to see an artist really jump off the page with what is essentially two characters sitting across the table from each other. And it's gorgeous. It's beautiful. It's enthralling. Uh, beyond that, as is the case with a couple of other things that I'm so excited about this week, including the appearance of Ratatasker, mm-hmm. uh, who I believe, if I'm not incorrect, last appeared in Unbeatable Squirrel Girl, another editor, Supreme Will Moss special. That was during the War of the Realms uh, issues, I believe. Right. Yeah, there you go. Um, appears here, which is just so cool. I love seeing a character pop up like that between two what like couldn't be more different series, um, but it fits so perfectly, it works so well. And then where we land in this issue is just something that Thor readers will be very, very excited about. I love this book. It's so much fun. Uh, somehow it strikes the balance every single month between terrifying and thrilling and like we like to say, delightful. And this is another entry like that. Yeah. I do want to also point out in the sequence that you were talking about where they're just chatting and and talking at a restaurant table, there's a couple of shots that Nick Klein draws, uh, especially where Donald is cutting the meat and then close Mm -hmm. up on his face and his eye. I looked at that and I was like, whoa, it reminds me very specifically of Joe Casada's work on X Factor number 87 from 1993. Just... Do me a favor, everybody listening. When you read this <laughs> issue, pull up your Marvel Unlimited. Go read X Factor 87. One, because it's one of the best issues of the 1990s. Two, you're going to go, whoa, Ryan was right, as always. All right. My second pick of the week is Modoc Head Games number two, because of course it is, you fools. Of course. It is written by Jordan Bloom and Pat Oswalt. Art by Scott Hepburn. Colors by Carlos Lopez. And letters by VCs Travis Lanham. My God, I love this book. It's so good and funny and weird, and it gives an arc and real development for Modoc. You're starting to like feel for this character who a lot of people throw as a like, you know, a joke or a goof or whatever. And there's funny stuff in here. There's jokes in here. It's friggin' it's got Modoc teaming up with Iron Man to infiltrate basically the villain version of CES, the Consumer Electronics Show, which Oh my God, I laughed a lot with that. <laughs> it's really cool, really funny. Uh, it has the best cosplay of the week with Modoc cosplaying as Arnim Zola 
and being really pissed off about having to do it because he hates him. <laughs> and it's mm-hmm. really funny. I won't spoil what Tony has to dress up as, but it's also terrific. You got tons of great cameos from villains in here, goofy stuff. And it has my favorite moment of the week, which is Modok. He headbutts the hate monger, the awful, awful racist villain and character. And Modok headbutts him, crushing hate monger's head in, screaming, you Nazi. If you are not on board with Modok up until now, if this doesn't get you, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> this book is so good. It's, it's everything I could have wanted and so much more. Oh, yeah. Awesome stuff. All right. Those were our picks for the week. And now we're diving into our pulleys for the week. And the first book that we're talking about is Amazing Spider-Man number 56. This is Last Remains Postmortem Part 1. This one I really thought was interesting. One, because we have Spot in it, a character that I think is just awesome. Two, because we have Kingpin in it, another character that I love that I just can never, ever, ever get enough of. But in general, I love Mark Bagley's work in this issue. I think he does some incredible acting in here, uh, particular for Norman Osborn, where you feel the character's emotion. You feel it jump off the page. There's also a couple great like throwback kind of influences where you'll just get a character's head essentially just like their face in like a blank background kind of popping into the page to tell a bit of the story it's just a little touch a little something that i feel like is rooted in some classic comic stuff that i just love to see and of course it's done so wonderfully and fleet-footedly by Mark Bagley and the entire art team. It's so much fun. This one is light on the Spidey, which was very interesting. It's kind of a a villain-focused issue. So if you're into that, this is totally for you. Uh, And it's a really, really interesting kind of mix-up when that happens. So it's, it's, it's pretty interesting. Yeah. Let's go to Guardians of the Galaxy number 10. This gets a couple of pulleys. For me, one is for artist Juan Cabal's layouts. We know he's one of our Stormbreakers, but man, just continues to shine and and prove why he's uh, so dang good. This also gets my reunion of the week pulley. As we know, Star-Lord has gone through some wild, wild stuff through this arc of Guardians of the Galaxy. And finally, we see him reunited with the team, and it is bonkers. It's real good. Oh, this is also a King and Black tie-in. So if you are getting all up in your King and Black stuff, definitely check this out. Oh, yeah. Next up, featuring my baby of the week won't say how why what that means i'll just say it's my baby of the week comes in hellions number eight which reminds me every time this zeb wells guy we got to get this zeb wells guy on the show come on uh what a fun dude and so great with hellions everything that's going on in this series i just adore there is a ton of drama going on here which was great nanny heavily involved of course and it's just excellent i think this just speaks to to the mutability of this series it can be so funny it can be super dark it can be really chaotic and it can be an action-packed thriller like we get this week it's just one of those books can be anything and i really 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 love this series love this creative team uh and love this baby you'll see what i mean when you read <laughs> well, there are no babies in iron man number five but it does get my pulley for the best rain of the week kafu the artist draws the rain 
And it just looks so like cinematic in a way that you don't always see in comics. The way it bounces off of Iron Man's armor is really something special. It's Iron Man trying to stop Korvac from basically becoming a god again. And it's not going very well for Iron Man. It does enlist a group of heroes getting a pulley from my surprise squad of the week, which is Gargoyle, Misty Knight, Scarlet Spider, and Frogman. Yep, that's that's the team that's going to stop Korvac, the god. We'll see how that goes. Oh, yeah. All right. Next up is Juggernaut number five. This wraps up this limited series. And what a fascinating ride it has been. So much great Marvel Comics weirdness in here. I really, really, really like it. I also really enjoy one of my favorite kind of color choices of the week. Matt Mila, who's the colorist on this series, because we visit Krakoa right in the opening pages. And there's just something about the colors that we see there that are a little bit different to the rest of the series. It's a little bit more colorful. It's a little bit more vibrant, a little bit stranger in a way that I just really enjoy the characterization. I think if you're not paying attention to it, you might not pick it up. But the fact that it's there, the fact that this is a special place, that the way that it's visualized is a little bit different is very, very interesting, especially given how Krakoa and the X-Men, the mutants, hold a very special place to juggle. Or not. I think this is quite a way to wrap it up, and it kind of turns in a way that I didn't really expect. So kudos to Fabian Nicieza, who's the writer on this series, and everyone involved. As far as series wrap-ups go, that gets my plea uh, this week. It's a really, really interesting ending, and I think ends up being a cool little package of a limited series story that we get here. Yeah. Um, all right, we've got another King in Black issue with King in Black Return of the Valkyries number one. It's Right there in the title, the Valkyries are returning. We, of course, have Jane Foster as a Valkyrie right now, but we are getting more Valkyries. We know we're going to have Hildegard show up in this, Danny Moonstar from the X-Men, but there's another one that is introduced in this issue who she's awesome and we get her history, the tragedy of her life, and it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful story. But I'll give a pulley to this for smooching of the week in a flashback. It's just really, really sweet stuff amidst the horror and the nightmare and the sadness and and the the big action. Mm -hmm. And hey, speaking of smooching, next up we have Miles Morales, Spider-Man number 22. I really honestly loved this issue. It is so pure Spider-Man to me. We started off with a really homespun angle on Miles, and then boom, we're off. We're flying through the streets of Brooklyn alongside uh, Miles and Starling in this issue, which is really cool. And then we get into the action. There is a villain in here, a kind of monster slash villain, hard to say the best way to describe it. It's called the Frost Pharaoh, and I got to give this my pulley for maybe character design of the week, monster design of the week. Natasha Bustos is the artist on this issue, and I think just crushes it. It is so perfect for this series. And then we get more Miles stuff, which I loved. We get more Ganky stuff, which I loved. This is a really simple Miles Morales story, and I think it crushes it. Shout out to this entire creative team. I really enjoyed this issue, as I have with this entire series. Yeah, Uh, there's a big name update in this issue, Mm -hmm. which I think is going to make a lot of people happy and something that has been sort of people have been figuring out for a while, which I think is really important. All right, let's go to Rise of Ultraman number five. This is the last issue of this limited series, but we know that we're getting another Ultraman series coming up real soon. This one wraps things up in wonderful ways. I love the way artist Francesco Mana draws Ultraman with the poses, when he's running, when he's fighting, everything. Francesco was born to draw 
Ultraman. And of course, Kyle Higgins and Matt Groom, born to write it. They are big kaiju guys. I, I will give this my pulley for kaiju fight of the week. It seems like that would be a cop-out because you may think it's the only book with kaiju, but kaiju just kind of means monster in Japanese, and mm-hmm. daikaiju means like giant monster. So with King and Black, the big dragons, those are kind of kaijus. The big, you know, frost pharaoh that you mentioned, that's kind of a kaiju, mm-hmm. you know, a little bit of a daikaiju. So... I give this my kaiju fight of the week as Ultraman goes toe-to-toe with a big boy. Big ol' sweet boy. <laughs> uh, and more toe-to-toe action on the way in Spider-Woman number eight. This is a King in Black tie-in. It was a funny experience reading this because as I was taking in the story, it's written by Carla Pacheco with Art by Perry Perez. I don't want to say their names because they just excel so much. I was like... There is some special stuff going on here. And if you haven't been reading Spider-Woman, I cannot recommend enough that you jump on board. I got to give my pulley to this issue for like maybe relationship of the week, dynamic of the week. There's something going on between Jess, between Spider-Woman and Octavia Vermis, which I just think is so wonderfully poised. It's so interestingly balanced between hero and villain and the dynamics of that. I think that art... And the action in this is really awesome. Perry Perez, when I think of that name, I think of a lot of dynamism and excellent action sequences. And that's something that we get big time here. And then as we get to the end of it, I don't even want to <laughs> intimate a little bit of what happens, but it yeah. really excited me. It was really, really cool. And I love the direction this series continues to go in. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned Perry and the action, because I think Perry is one of our best fight choreographers yeah. in comics right now. So good. Um, all right, let's move over to the first of two Star Wars titles this week. We have Star Wars number 10. Gets my pulley for Lobot Roller Coaster of the Week. A lot of uh, tension around our favorite cyborg guy Lobot just you know Lobot's always been a favorite of mine from Empire Strikes Back he's just so interesting and weird and it's the middle of some wild rebel antics as they're trying to save themselves but also throw off the Empire and everything is going wrong it's your classic Star Wars stuff yeah and hey speaking of classic Star Wars in a different way this next book is Star Wars the High Republic number one we kick off the High Republic era and that is a cross-media thing it's something that I know Star Wars fans have been very excited about for a long time for me the pulley this week for this issue is just kind of classic weird Star Wars and that is something I'm a huge fan of that's something that has deep roots in Marvel Comics and Marvel Comics Star Wars stories we get plenty of it here in the best way it's really cool you get a perfect kind of concise timeline of where this falls into the Star Wars stories that you may be more familiar with. So it's a good way to dive in that way. Uh, And then you're just right away from issue number one, fully invested in these character stories. Uh, And it's a really, really fascinating start to what is, you know, a a new chapter of Star Wars history and something that I think is going to be really, really exciting to continue to explore. Yeah. All right. We got another King in Black issue here with Symbiote Spider-Man King in Black number three. Uh, This gets my pulley for best banter of the week. Of course, writer Peter David is one of the kings of banter and dialogue and just conversations. It is funny. It's fast moving. It is action packed in even its dialogue. Aside from... Modoc's Nazi smashing panel. This also gets my pulley for favorite panel of the week with Rocket and Kang screaming at each other saying, are you okay? Yes. And it is just, it's funny. It's hilarious. You got 
Spider-Man and a whole bunch of like weird characters thrown together dealing with symbiote stuff in the past, but it ties into the null of it all in, in the current comics. Oh, yeah. All right. We have next up Venom number 32, which, of course, is deeply entwined with everything null, with everything going on in King in Black. Look, I'll give you I'll give you a warning. Skip ahead if you don't want to know about it. But, you know, in issue number one of King of Black, Eddie got thrown off a building and you're like, oh, it's superhero stuff. He'll be fine. No, he wasn't fine. He landed on a car and then he died. And that's what's going on right now. In this issue, we get to dive further down into, I don't know where we are, the in-between liminal space of Eddie Brock's head, of his existence, of his reality. If you've been reading Venom over the past few years, this issue will be super striking to you. I don't want to talk about who pops up when we get to examine that part of Eddie Brock, but it's really fascinating. Look, the other major takeaway from this is, you know, maybe my pulley for this issue is just like scream it from the rooftop, scream the name Ivan Coelho, one of Marvel's Stormbreakers. I know when we talk about Venom, we we hear the names in our head, Donny Cates and Ryan Stegman. I want to scream this name so that when we think of it, we think of Donny Cates, Ryan Stegman and Ivan Coelho because the work mm-hmm. that Ivan has been doing on this series is just stellar. It is absolutely right up there with the best of the best of the best uh, for all those venom stands out there and i know there are millions and millions of them they're going to get very excited what goes on here it's a really interesting turn another great chapter in the story of eddie brock hell yeah last of the new books this week is x factor number six i just got to give a special shout out to the the writer and artist here leah williams and david baldion are phenomenal together. Mm-hmm. They're really, really good. I'm a huge fan of Leah's work, and I think this book is like letting her shine, you know, like building the team dynamics of this X Factor squad, which has got Dokken, you've got iBoy, North Star, you've got Polaris, and more. And you've got, you know, all these characters sort of bouncing off of each other. And then you take all of that. Leah does such great work building these characters and, and turning them into a squad. And then, man, David does some of the greatest facial acting that we see in comics right now. North Star and his husband Kyle just looking at each other, uh, just being so in love. I love those little moments. And then when they're investigating uh, a death and doing all kinds of stuff, everything about this book freaking rules. Read X Factor number six. It's terrific. You can jump in here, even if you've not read the rest of the issues, although there's a bunch already on Marvel Unlimited. It really sets things up. It's terrific. It's a really fun book. Definitely check it out. Oh, yeah. All right. That's what we have for individual issues on sale this week. Uh, a bunch of great stuff, as always, available in print for print collections. Uh, the one I want to shout out is Always an Invader, which is a hardcover collection of Chip Zdarsky's uh, Invaders series, which was excellent. I I think that Invaders number one is one of my favorite opening issues of the past few years, and that's just where we start. Great stuff. Uh, so check out uh, not just that, but everything we got available in print collections yeah, this week. For sure. Uh, over on Marvel Unlimited, bunch of new issues in there. Stuff to help you catch up because now comics are available three months after they hit comic shops and digital stores. Uh, a couple that I wanted to point out, Giant Size X-Men tribute to Ween and Cockrum number one, which basically that's a whole bunch of amazing artists basically do cover songs of different pages in the issue and take put their own spin on them. It's really, really cool to check out. Shang-Chi number one. So if you want to start reading that limited series, of course, we you know the Marvel Studios film is coming uh, later this year, so you want to get hip to everything Shang-Chi. And then, as I was just talking about, X-Factor, X-Factor number four is on Marvel Unlimited. It is a Ten of Swords issue, 
So you should be reading it. It's Ten of yeah. Swords, which was really good. It's X Factor, which is really good. And uh, for the full list of all that stuff, go to Marvel.com. We'll have all that stuff for you. And when you're checking out stuff on Marvel Unlimited, you can also read Sensational She-Hulk, which we are about to talk about with Lorraine Sink. This is, again, a rerun of uh, the conversation we had with Lorraine a couple months ago, but is a good one. Lorraine's terrific. She's one of my best friends, and mm-hmm. she knows the hell out of her stuff, and she picked a great book for us to talk about. And, of course, it's She-Hulk, so dig into it. Lorraine freaking Sink, welcome to Marvel's Pull List. How are you, my friend? <laughs> oh, my God. I'm so excited. I'm back. I've taken like a three-and-a-half-year hiatus from Pull List, but I'm here <laughs> And I'm ready to talk about comic books. And the most exciting thing of all, no offense, Ryan, but Tucker, because I see you all the time, Ryan, but Tuck, I don't get to see every day. I know. It's a dang delight. Tucker, if you steal my catchphrase, <laughs> I'm going to I'm gonna throttle you. You didn't pull a 3D. You was only a 2D. So <laughs> that that is fine. Uh, one thing I like about this is because I, of course, on shows with both of you here on Marvel's Pull List, as well as on This Week in Marvel, I feel like Wolverine... Whereas the two of you are collectively the X-Men or the Avengers because Wolverine, he's like, oh, the X-Men want me. Oh, the (laughs) Avengers want me. Oh, I'm the darling over here. Oh, I'm the darling over there, which is authentic Wolverine dialogue. Uh, All right. We are not here to talk about Wolverine. We are here to talk about your pick for Reading Club. Lorraine, what you got for us? Um, I am really excited because I chose Sensational She-Hulk by John Byrne. Uh, the OG 1989 run, because it's one of my favorites. I talk to Ryan about it all the time, and I finally am forcing him to read it specifically with me. <laughs> I'm so glad you did. Uh, I've read the first issue a number of times, but I, I, for whatever reason, I've only read sporadic issues in the run, never on through. I blazed through these six issues, oh, and I yeah. was like, I wish I didn't have a hundred other things to do because I just want to f- keep reading. They're so fun, right? Tucker, had you ever uh, read this series before? I think I think as well I had read the first issue but hadn't gone beyond that. And it was really amazing to me more than anything just how fun it is. I think maybe it's just the Hulk side of things that people in general or maybe just specifically me, like I associate with like a more dramatic, like intense tone. But it is just like a romp. I had so much fun. It was awesome. Oh my God. I mean... It truly is Deadpool before Deadpool. Yeah. You know, like that's the thing that just kills me about it. It's so funny. There's so many asides. It's so fourth wall breaking. I love that even as you're reading, it'll be like, this issue isn't funny enough. Like it, there will fully be like a note <laughs> in the corner, like this issue isn't funny enough. So we're just going to like tell some knock knock jokes, essentially. <laughs> it, it reminds me in some ways of old like slapstick black and white. Mm-hmm. like comedies of where you just have from the get-go it is on it is gags and humor and jokes and as you're trying to process one thing something else is already firing and it's hilarious but it's also a gorgeous book gorgeous it's so gorgeous i mean some of the artwork in this is just I mean, it's like John Byrne having way too much fun unattended, clearly. Obviously, like, the superhero stuff is beautiful. She-Hulk is, like, gorgeous, hulking, muscular badass. But then, like, my favorite... Like, I love that there's a point where, you know, She-Hulk's literally like, oh, the cosmic stuff, and they show a bunch of ships, and then... Literally, she's like, you can do better, Burn. And then (laughs) there's, like, a crazy Kirby-esque, like, huge two-page splash of just, like, 
an amazing sort of like black and white, that sort of mixed media looking cosmos. And it's so good. It's Plus, tremendous. You just get a, a cavalcade of friggin' weirdos, which is yeah. my jam. Yeah. Just all the weirdest characters are like, this is my book. Lorraine, when was the first time you read this series? Um, I definitely read like bits and pieces as a kid, which I think flew over my head. But I really sat down and read all of She-Hulk's continuity a couple of years ago when I was working on my book, Powers of a Girl, because I was like, I just want to truly understand this character. And because she was created in like 79, 80, she was really easy to kind of go back and read her canon because she either is a solo series or she's in a team book, but she's not usually doing a lot uh, or like multiple books, like line wide. So she's really easy to sit down and read all of. And it was just so good. I'm a, I'm just very obsessed with She-Hulk as a character in general because she's like so badass and so funny and I and Burn it to me is like the quintessential She-Hulk voice to me now. Was Jen Walters always this kind of tone? Was it always this way from mm -hmm. book 1 or did it evolve in like how in your like research and your perspective on this character did did she get to this point? Well, it's kind of interesting because, to my knowledge, She-Hulk was really created around the Hulk television show to as a huh. sort of IP play. Like, they were like, oh, well, we should definitely have a female Hulk character so we can sort of own it and, like, cultivate that voice. So that first She-Hulk book was created. But um, the book itself in Savage She-Hulk, it's, it's much more straightforward. It's more of a Bruce Banner story. But as it goes along, you can tell, like, she can't get any of the A-class villains so it is like a real rogues gallery of just D-list insane characters. And as it goes on, she's not as cheeky or like fourth wall breaking as she is during John Byrne. That was really, John Byrne loved working with her in Avengers and Fantastic Four and then just took this book and like ran with it because um, he clearly just, he wrote the funniest stuff for She-Hulk in all of the team books. She'd always be like, oh, I got to fix my car. And then she'd like pick it up and carry it away, <laughs> you know? just chef's kiss all the time but in that first savage she-hulk run she was really more straightforward you know she was really a trying to be a lawyer she was always pulled between zapper her boyfriend with a mustache and oh i can't remember the other guy's name but like some d-list dude um neither of which were very good boyfriends but she was kind of like pushed and pulled and her father was the sheriff and it was the sort of classic um you know, I'm a vigilante and my father is the sheriff who doesn't agree with this. Uh, so there was a lot more like sort of dramatic turmoil and a lot of sort of D-list characters. So it's sort of like a weird, uh, like a kind of keeping it weird drama. Mm. Whereas this is just like, we know we're weird and we're just like going for it now. Right, right. Yeah. And 1989, John Byrne is just, can kind of get away with it in a way, mm -hmm. you know, like he can get a book that is She-Hulk, use D-list villains, make it a comedy book, and have it last like four or five years. You know, credit to him. And um, uh, big credit to, of course, Bobby Chase, who is the oh, editor yeah. on the title. I mean, I, that's one of the things I love about this run, too, is the editors are as much a part of the book as She-Hulk. You know, they're constantly talked to and about. They show up in the corners of pages. They write to each other on the page. So you kind of see the creative process in a cheeky way. And... I also love that like Tom DeFalco as editor in chief at this point is sort of like loomed over. It, it's like he's the dark overlord that they have to continue to answer to. Ugh, so good. With those kind of choices and that kind of self-referential style, 
Is there an awareness, Ryan or Lorraine, of how like groundbreaking this was at the time? Was this just taking like a not brand X style and making it, you know, a main superhero book? Was this, you know, that was something it was taking of like Foom or something like that and marrying it with a narrative in a bigger way? Or is this really the first time that we're we're seeing this with like a this is a superhero book that's coming out, you know, regularly kind of thing? I mean, theater did it obviously first, as with all things in human storytelling, theater did it first. But, you know, cartoons were wildly popular for doing this and talking directly to the audience and being like, ain't I a stinker? And I think that that definitely, you know, even from the early days of comics would show up. But I just think in superhero genre, it went away because it took away from the dramatic quality of, of storytelling. So it just kind of has fallen out of vogue in comics. And I don't know. What what do you think, Ryan? Yeah, I I, th- I think, you know, this was just a I, I don't want to say it like was especially intentionally groundbreaking. I think it was trying to be satirical and it was trying to mm-hmm. have fun and bring humor because that's a tough thing to do. We don't get a lot of like funny comic books that last for a long time. Um, we had a straight up like parody book in What the at this time, mm-hmm. which, you know, is my favorite, but there was, um, there wasn't, as far as I remember, a lot of like straight up just funny comic books. And if yeah. we look at right. what was on sale the same time the first issue was on sale, thanks to our producer, MR Daniel, for uh, putting this in our uh, research, it was January 3rd, 1989, when this first issue came out. And on sale the same week, two G.I. Joe spinoff issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was some new universe stuff, which gets made fun of later in the series. Uh, there's Conan stuff. Um, Strike Force Moratori is at issue 29, and that's a super serious book. It's really great. Um, and and stuff like Nam magazine. You know, oh, you yeah. look at the line. It's superheroes and some generally like more like older stuff, not humor, action adventure, whatever it is. This opened a whole new door of right. what we could do at Marvel and the stories we could tell. So I think that's sort of the like. The, where it lives it really gave us something completely different yeah I think right now this book is kind of relevant too because many of us are working from home and uh it's definitely like you can feel John Byrne working alone you know <laughs> like um he's collaborating <laughs> a little bit with his editors and his inker and and those kinds of things but like he's talking to himself a lot in the issues and I think it's it, there's something sort of like the wonderful fun that you can have being creative by yourself because he was the writer and the artist on the book for most issues. So I just kind of think it's it sort of fits right now's time. Lorraine, you mentioned the other folks on the book. I wanted to make sure to shout out um, Colors by Glynis Oliver, Letters by John Workham, and, and some others. But I wanted to shout out um, the inker for most mm-hmm. of the issues that we read, Bob Wyacek, because he does such a great service to John Burns. Very, like, very detailed, thin mm-hmm. line work. He doesn't over exaggerate it it doesn't muddy it up it's really clean work which really helps sell what john is doing here and it's wildly detailed these issues yeah like i i'm just i try to process as i read this like what burn was working on at this time the month that the first issue of sensational she hulk came out um same month was released uh, a story in Marvel Comics Presents that he wrote and drew. Um, he was working on a West Coast Avengers, writing and drawing it. He did a piece in New Mutants number 75 where he drew it. And he was finishing up his run on Starbrand as writer and artist. And so 
during these issues, he's working on Avengers, West Coast Avengers, Sensational She-Hulk. It's wild to yeah. to see how prolific and how talented that he was at this point. Um, yeah, I mean, he also clearly just loves it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like the way he, he presents his work, you can just feel like I am just having a good time. Yeah, I think that's a good um, point to get into some of the nitty gritty of the issues, because the first issue, the thing that strikes you about any of these issues, I think, are the covers, because the covers not only have word balloons on them, which is not something we do much these days, but they are also breaking the fourth wall immediately, addressing you, the audience, bringing up the fact that this is a comic book, that they mm-hmm. that she understands she lives in a comic book world. The first issue has her holding her first appearance in Savage She-Hulk, which is tremendous it's so good i love what this says here i actually had it open because i also wanted to talk about it because it's so good she's like okay now this is your second chance because this is of course her second ever solo book uh the first being savage and then she says if you don't buy my book this time i'm gonna come to your house and rip up all your (laughs) x-men um which at the time you know x-men was was the hot cheese whiz as they say it was the hot cheese whiz precisely that is what everyone says about the <laughs> x-men in 1988 89 <laughs> um just a couple of weeks ago we had on uh mark wade and we mm. were talking about omega the unknown and in omega the unknown we got into a discussion about ruby thursday and the headmen oh and, my god uh, and we we spent so perfect it's like two minutes just talking about the glory that is the headmen. And when I opened this up, I was like, oh, I forgot the headmen are the villains of the first three issues of this. It's so good. I I need to know what your first experiences were with these glorious, weird villains. Oh, each man. Of you. You, you know I was loving it. Oh, my God. Well, I mean, come on now. First of all, you spend whenever they're introduced, you're like, Why? <laughs> what is this name and who are these men um but yeah they're just guys with like different bodies than their heads <laughs> pretty much that's, that's the gimmick it's that's it. amazing it's it's ridiculous and it, there's even a page where she hulk i think it's issue two or three where she exp- she like does the rundown of who they are and why they're this way i just man in my dreams, the headmen will have a Disney Plus show in like five years. <laughs> oh, Ryan, you are the only one who wants that. <laughs> really Real, me and Mark Wade, baby. Yeah. 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 I, I love, you know, this issue has the headmen, has the ringmaster and the circus of crime. And it's just, it, it's really just a, a nice, beautiful setup issue to, you know, remind you who she is. We get her origin. We get her place and everything. Um, you get a little bit of the tone, and I think it, the the series gets more absurd as we mm-hmm. go along. The first issue, I mean, I say that, but the last page of this issue is the full reveal of the headmen, including Chandu, which is <laughs> a nightmare creature. Oh, I love right before that, too. She's like, I'm not going to find out who the villains are until issue three, but you'll probably find out on the next page. Yeah, and she <laughs> looks them. at the camera, and you're like, Whoa, whoa, I'm in for a ride. It's it's so much fun. Chandu is amazing because he essentially has a unicorn horn. He has like griffin feet, like eagle feet. Um, He's got, I I don't know what to call it, like silly string for arms. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what it's supposed to be. He is truly a horrible, horrible nightmare. Yeah, he is. God bless him. 
we get into the second issue and the cover is with the toad men and it's referencing a classic incredible hulk story where she's even reading <laughs> that <Yeah>. incredible <laughs> hulk comic and she's eating cookies and she's in her super comfy sweater which something about the way burn draws that sweater both on the cover and inside i'm like i want to wear that sweater well <laughs> I also, it ages in an interesting way, but I do think is really funny about this book. Like her clothes get kind of weirdly torn off at times or like uh, her shirt like disintegrates when the toad men are shooting her. But there's this sort of sense of like, I love that sweater, <laughs> you know, in- instead of sort of like the, ooh, no, oops, I'm sexy kind of thing that you kind of expect to see from that sort of sort of male gaze. But there, it's really like sort of subverting the male gaze in a really funny way, I think. Um, while playing into it at the same time, which I don't know, it just really cracks me up. It, it really does sort of have a great sense of like, uh, like a female point of view that is very sort of knowing and cheeky, um, as opposed to f- it feeling sort of like creepy, uh, c- super creepy. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah it, 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 it walks that line very, very well. Um, and, and is, is a hoot. Um, the, the second issue, we get Mysterio, who is definitely a, now at this point, I guess, B-plus level character. <laughs> at that point, you know, he's like C, somewhere in the Cs, but still higher up than anybody else has been in the book before. One of the things I love about this, and we get the editor's notes about from the Tom DeFalco, are just the looks inside She-Hulk's apartment that she's taking over for uh, Jenna Van Dyne, the Wasp. I'm like, that apartment is amazing. I know, right? I, I love this part, too, because at one point, Tom DeFalco is like, all right, get back to this Millie the Model stuff, which is so tickling because it is like it's a ton of fashion and like beautiful apartments and ladies just being like, we live in New York. And I love it because it, you know, it's kind of like a story is She-Hulk and, and Janet Van Dyne. Janet, you know, of course, is like, I'm very wealthy. Please enjoy one of my many homes. <laughs> and Jen just sort of like getting the lay of the land and, and feeling whatever. And then, of course, toad men. <laughs> Weird little cockney accented fake yeah. toad men, which they show like there's no real explanation about them. No, absolutely and I love not. it. <laughs> well, I, I guess they're part of the illusion. Yeah. But the, right. they, Mysterio, Mysterio names them as if we like maybe maybe they are more well known than I give them credit <laughs> for. But I'm like, oh, yeah, those guys. Sure. I love that panel where they f- like fly in on these little jetpacks. It's like these weird little banshee screams as they kind of like toe this line between being the completely like least threatening guys in the world, but also somehow posing a threat at the same time. I loved it. Oh, and I was going to say also in this issue, an incredibly important thing to me happens, which is uh, Louise Mason is brought back from retirement. Obscurity, kind of. Super obscurity. So Louise Mason was a superhero in the 1940s called the Blonde Phantom, uh, who was sort of like the penny to Inspector Gadget. Uh, Essentially, this guy was like the inspector who could, I I think he's actually like an FBI agent, but he's like the FBI agent who can't ever get anything right and is always missing the clues. And the Blonde Phantom is like this very beautiful sort of woman who looks like she would be in the movie L.A. Confidential, who (laughs) runs around and solves all the crimes and then essentially hands him like, and this is how it was done. Goodbye. And she runs off into the night. Meanwhile, she's also his secretary. Um, But eventually... (laughs) 
you know, that book was canceled, but I love it because they let her grow up. She, she's old. She's in her 60s um, when she shows up and she's not the blonde baby anymore, which it gets explained in a later issue uh, and is, wow, a real feel moment. We'll get to that one because I, I loved that. And also that she is nicknamed Wheezy, which is also yeah. the nickname for Louise Simonson, um, prolific writer and, and editor and creator uh, at Marvel, specifically at this time. Um, the Mysterio angle gets us to our third issue and gives us the big guest star with the great cover where you see Spidey dropping in the spotlight like he's uh, like they're on the, the Tonight Show. Um, <laughs> it's, it's really wonderful. One of the things that I loved about this is that Byrne is also he does an incredible McFarlane impression huh. here in in the way he draws Spidey. And, you know, mm-hmm. at this time in 1989, that's when Todd McFarlane's Spider-Man is really rolling along. And it, it's an interesting thing to take the character who you're putting him in a guest star in your book and to take him and make him look like he would look in his own book. I think is a really fun and smart and just clever little trick to to sort of sell the illusion a little bit more. I love it because it's that thing where if we were reading this book the week it came out, Ryan, it's something that we talk about on the show all the time where it's just like, oh, it's so cool to see this artist draw this character this week. It's so awesome to see this kind of thing that we don't get that often. You know, I get that buzz reading this, the mixture of Byrne and Spider-Man in here. It just, it's so cool. Well, and half of this book is fully a Spider-Man book. There's no (laughs) She-Hulk. It's just Spider-Man whipping through the city looking for Mysterio kind of tracking him figuring out what what's his deal um and and then of course we get to the headman where it really all pays off <laughs> um yeah and has one of those great moments with the the page where it is headless you know she-hulk just as a head telling literally telling jokes and getting a pie in the face uh <laughs> to sort of like say don't worry kids this is a funny book I also appreciate before she gets her head cut off, she literally says, I thought DeFalco said they couldn't cut my head off. (laughs) Where you can just tell they were like, oh, I can't cut her head off. Okay, I'm just going to make that a note in the page. And what are you going to do about it? I love the moments of just pure silliness in, in all of these issues where it's just like inconsequential jokes that are just taking time to be silly for the sake of being silly, like the pie in the face, like so many other things, like... I adore that. Yeah. Um, as the, the issue wraps up, one of the things that I think recurs throughout the series is She-Hulk being underestimated by someone, um, mm-hmm. but also sort of underestimating herself against other people. You know, she like she doesn't like watch her back at the, all the time. She's mm-hmm. like so overconfident in her abilities, which makes sense because she's a freaking Hulk, so she can handle pretty much anything. But, you know, like Spidey is even like, uh don't you're you're gonna be flattened if you go against that giant truck with spikes on it and she just like rips it in half and spidey's like oh 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 oh, you're different than me got it (laughs) (laughs) um can we talk about issue four because it starts with my favorite let's do it um i just love it is like prime late 80s fashion i mean she hulk already usually has some pretty great fashion because she looks like a fashion model, you know, like a really buff one. Mm -hmm. And she does this amazing sort of like, what am I going to wear to this job interview? And just like, just fashion for fashion's sake. And they're so phenomenal in her 80s power suit. I just super love it. I also, I really do, like, I love her um, 
her villain fights because they tend to be very funny and slapsticky and silly. But I really, really am sort of living for the B storyline in this. I love her sort of normal human life as a lawyer, working in the DA's office, hanging out with Wheezy, who is the heart of this book by far and away. Yeah. She and She-Hulk end up going out to lunch. And she's sort of like, eh, what's going on? Why are you so old, though? And and she tells the most beautiful, heartfelt story about as soon as her ca- her comic strip was canceled, her and uh, Mr. Mason got married. And they because they were sort of forgotten from comic books, they started to age. Uh, and it, it, you know, finally, towards the end of the story, you realize that Mr. Mason is no longer alive. And if only someone had written them sooner, uh, they he might have lived and they might have stayed young forever. Um, and it's just such a sweet, sad, <laughs> poignant story in the middle. Um, while, while Wheezy also continues to be like a very funny She-Hulk-esque character who is also sort of uh, very confident but in a different direction. Uh, she also has a great moment where she thinks about wearing her original blonde phantom uh, <laughs> costume, which was essentially a very slinky uh, gown, red gown, and she imagines wearing it on her little sort of like stooped over chubby old lady body, and is like, nah. <laughs> uh, but it's it's just so sweet, and it's so earned because you've you know there's so much funny stuff and there's so much action. It just feels like the most earned little moment between the two of them. And if any of our listeners want to go out there and read um, more recent Blonde Phantom stories, Paul Tobin, a friend of mine, he had written a, a couple uh, during the 2000s that I really dug. He, he's a huge Blonde Phantom fan and resurrected her for more recent times, and she's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, and that issue, the, the villain is Stiltman. And what it goes exactly to what I was saying. Like She underestimates her opponents and mm-hmm. gets like stomped into the ground by oh, the yeah. stilts. But at the same time, Stiltman completely underestimates her because she's a Hulk. And she's just like, <laughs> she's more like annoyed with herself than anything here because she's going to kick the living crap out of him when she gets the chance. That Stiltman sequence, I got to say, is so awesome. I love the action in that. The where she gets like punched through the ground by one of the stilts mm-hmm. and then down into the subway. The way it's visualized, yeah. where like her her like head is getting dragged through uh, the roof of a moving train is so cool. It's so imaginative. Literally never seen anything like that before until I read this. It's just so good. And the way that it takes advantage of like the combination of the panel structure and the height and stature of Stiltman is just awesome. So fun. Yeah, I know. I love that. It, it, she's very much like the, the hook on an old timey can opener. Yeah, yeah. It's so good. Uh, We get into the next issue, issue number five, uh, which is really fun. It, like, does a lot of little parodies of, you know, all kinds of cartoons like the Flintstones and the Jetsons and more, but resurrecting uh, another old random weird villain in Dr. Bong. Dr. Bong using his his vibrations to get crazy. Um, Dr. Bong also, I should say, is essentially a a man with a bell for a head. My favorite thing about Dr. Bong is uh, his sexy assistant, Fifi, who is a French duck woman with a sexy, sexy body, but essentially Howard the Duck's face. Yep. It's... yeah. It is bonkers. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought up Howard the Duck because Dr. Bong's an old Howard the Duck villain. Howard the Duck mm-hmm. sort of did a lot of this stuff that is done in this book, you know, 10, mm-hmm. 15 years earlier, but in a more like mature and subversive way. This, mm-hmm. you know, this 
sensational She-Hulk run feels more like vibrant and poppy and um, I don't want to say like family friendly or anything like that, but it's, it's something that like, I don't know that I'd want a kid, one of my kid, if she was like eight years old, necessarily reading 1976 Howard the Duck comics, but I would give her 1989 sensational She-Hulk. Well, I would also say Howard the Duck is filled with existential dread. Yes. Whereas She-Hulk is like, I'm the fabulous lady about town. So I feel like while they they use a lot of the same toolbox, it's it's definitely a really different outlook. <laughs> <laughs> Last thing about this issue for me was I love when we in this issue get into like, you know, Jen is literally pulling back the page and kind of jumping across like um like such like esoteric you know comic stuff comics inside comics in this way that is like we're making similar jokes today you know and Mm -hmm. this is 30 years later i just think it's so cool just that alone there are so many great things you know to the point where it's actually in this issue she's trying to get back to reality and she's literally like tearing she's like okay we can't get out of this tv that we're trapped in so we're just gonna have to punch our way through the comic book page and they kind of punch their way out ryan i feel like you would know this do you know what that page was that they're in front of they're they're in front of like a stats page like a comic book stats page that i didn't recognize so this is one of my favorite gags in the entire thing Uh, and this was also really cool because wheezy set it up i think the issue before where um they were jen was like how do we get from how do we go through the panels and wheezy's like once you know you're in a comic book you're you can do it too and so she takes that skill that she learns the issue before takes it here and so what they do is they bust through one page and go across a two-page spread which is for big bucks comics um this is my favorite thing because if you just look at it for what She-Hulk and the the character she's saving are doing. They're just walking across these two pages. But in the comics of the day, you would have mail order companies um, who would advertise in Marvel and DC and any comic of like books you can buy from them and you can order from them. And so Big Bucks Comics is a fake company that is selling all kinds of different Marvel books. I read the entirety of all these lines. They are so many jokes in here. It's jam-packed with hilarious bits. I highly implore, take the the 20 minutes it takes to read the entire really fine print of these because there's so many little weird and funny jokes uh, about all the books that Marvel was putting out. Absolutely love these two pages. I spent a lot of time looking at these (laughs) earlier. It's so good. Um, We get into the final issue that we're going to talk about here, which is Sensational She-Hulk number six, the cover of which has Jen uh, holding onto a rocket, going into space, has the great Star Trek-ish font at the bottom called Star Trek, which this issue has two, uh, kind of two characters that I can't believe were in this book. One being Razorback, who is the dude with the big warthog mask, who is a mutant. So, Tucker, you and I, we need to talk to Jordan D. White and ask him when Razorback is getting brought to Krakoa, (laughs) getting his mutant powers back, and getting his own title. That's one. And then two was US-1, which is a superhero trucker that went to space. I can't believe they spent so much time with US-1. It's just (laughs) glorious. It is utterly bucket nuts. 
this i mean all of these issues are just crazy but man it, it is literally just a space truckers issue like that's it you go to space there are truckers i love the truck stop in space which is i mean the art in this book though is super duper crushing it is so you know that image that i talked about earlier on in the show is in this issue that huge crazy space collage it's a big black and white kind of you know kirby in the 70s moment it is so good um and then i'm just obsessed with the truck stop because it reminds me of space balls yes um, <laughs> it's like a big space balls moment where and there's like a million aliens i can't imagine Obviously, there's like a, you know, there's like a Guardians cameo in it of the Guardians 3000, you know, with like Vance Astrovic and that and the Yondu with the, you know, the big Mohawk situation. Hippie Yondu. Hippie Yondu, yeah. Uh, but I just, it's just a truck stop that is full of a million aliens and it's, they're all different. I love this one that like looks like essentially a huge purple nose with two adorable big yeah. eyes and long <laughs> eyelashes She's just my favorite, and she's just walking with a hot tray of food, and I was like, I feel seen. This is me. <laughs> that moment, Lorraine, I think, where we get that huge spread where it's it's black and white, and it's just really beautiful. I think that's it captures this almost like indefinable feeling for me where we're having so much fun. It's so wacky and zany, and then there's this moment of what feels like release where it's just like ah like the glory of comics you know what I mean? and it's mm -hmm. a real moment of like it, like heart for me you know where it's saying like remember this like look at mm -hmm. like look at what we can do you know and it's just beautiful and and really i don't know if i've ever felt that specific feeling um that that it that it gave me but i just loved it i loved it it's so great. It's also like such a freaking guitar solo for John Byrne. He's like, oh, yeah, I'm doing all this fun stuff that's like good times and whatever. And he's like, B but have you seen space, though, bro? <laughs> like, it's just uh, a full on uh, stage dive. Squeeew! Yeah. Down the guitar. Yeah. And it ends with the glory that is Zemnu the Titan, most recently seen in the pages of Immortal Hulk, getting to jump out of here and be a big, weird, white, furry self. Uh, that we only read six issues. We could probably have read all sixty and had oh, a yeah. blast. Um, I'm really glad you picked this one, Lorraine. It was so good. I am too. I really enjoyed getting to read it again. Also, I'm just really tickled by next issue. I have no mouth and I am mean. <laughs> <laughs> Zemnu. Oh, what a blessing. Yeah, just such fun. Everybody should go read Sensational She-Hulk because it is the flipping best. Yes, Agreed. really is. Uh, Lorraine, thanks for being on the show. Um, I'm sure I'll talk to you again later or tomorrow or whatever <laughs> for something else we're working on. Thank you guys so much for having me, specifically Tucker. Yes. Um, because I don't get to see Tucker. And uh, <laughs> at, at this point, this is your show now. You are the captain now. <laughs> uh, Lorraine, you know what? You're just a ding-dang delight. Oh, shucks. How... Dare you. I got him. This interview <laughs> is over. <laughs> Lorraine Sink, just the best. Jen Walters, just the best. That felt like exactly the kind of book that I want to read when talking to Lorraine Sink about it. Perfect entryway to that character. Perfect primer to all the glorious future that we have with Jen Walters. Yeah. 
I think it's a good one to have now because I feel like we should try to get Mr. Dan Slott on sometime yes. this year and talk about his run of She-Hulk so we can give an, another perspective on on Shulky. Uh, well, hopefully we'll have that for you in a couple months. For now, we're going to wrap up. And this episode of Marvel's Pull List was produced by Ryan Panagos, Tucker Marquez, Jorge Estrada, and MR Daniel with help from Megan Bagala. Jill DeBoff is our director of audio. And Brad Barton is Marvel's Polis audio development manager. And surprise, he is one of the 100 deviants that was created by the Celestials. He's Whoa. a sneaky guy. Uh, so he's like, he's one of those okay deviants that's just yeah. like, ah, I'm, I'm a monster, but I'm just trying to get by in this, <laughs> this wacky world. Leave me alone. So, you know, good on you, Brad. Good I'm Ryan. You, Brad. And I'm Tucker. And this is Marvel. Your universe.